So let me preface this by saying that Christine and I talked yesterday about the, uh, the, the need for me to preach this morning. So uh, you're getting the, uh, the sashimi plate as opposed to the, the cooked salmon uh, as far as the sermon goes. So that's my disclaimer. Uh, I've always found that if you lower your expectations, you're never disappointed. <laughs> so um, I want to begin with a little story. Uh, so in my day job, I'm the acting dean and president of General Seminary, which is the Episcopal Seminary just across the street here in Chelsea. And um, since the pandemic travel restrictions have been lifted, I've had to travel a lot more than I had been for the preceding two years. Like many of you, uh, we were locked in as well and didn't travel very much. And now that I'm traveling, um, I found myself getting strangely uh, like excited about collecting miles. And um, I have a particular airline that I fly most of the time, which I won't say because I think they'd like take the video down from, the, from YouTube if I said the name of the, the airline. But it's a major carrier. All carriers are the same. They're all terrible. But this one, I, I, I travel with exclusively, and I got the credit card that like, I get the extra miles for, and I've got the app on my phone. And I found myself obsessing about like what status I am, like you know, going from just like normal person to like the next status means that I get a free drink voucher every 3,000 miles or something like that, as if that's some kind of major motivation. And it got me thinking, you know, why am I so obsessed about brand loyalty to an airline of all things? Uh, and I think it's because somehow with these um, loyalty clubs and points clubs and apps and cards and everything, uh, they've managed to, uh, to communicate a sense of belonging. Like, somehow or another, I now belong at this gate with 6,000 other people, or I belong on this airline. And there's something about being part of something that they've been able to tap into. And uh, belonging uh, and travel, ironically enough, are two of the major themes in the Book of Acts that we read from today. And when we look at the book of Acts, it is both uh, an enormous travelogue of uh, Peter and Paul and Philip and other disciples and their adventures uh, figuring out what it means to follow in the way of Jesus after the, um, the ascension of Jesus. And it's also a story of these ever-expanding concentric circles of God's inclusion and love creating a community in which all people belong. And the interpretive hint to this are some of the last words that Jesus says uh, in the book of Acts uh, when he tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in, in Judea, the province in which Jerusalem is situated, in Samaria, the nearest province, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is setting out, or Luke in the mouth of Jesus, is setting out this narrative device that invites us to think about how God's love is expanding out, rippling out like a stone thrown into a pond into the world. And so that brings us to where we were this morning in Luke, or in Acts chapter 16, uh, as Paul and uh, his companion Timothy, uh, and possibly Luke as well, uh, receive this, this call from God to visit Macedonia. This is a hinge point in Paul's missionary journeys. 
Up to this point, he's been in Asia Minor, what in, in like Bible translations we call Asia Minor, but in modern day parlance is, is Turkey. They've been wandering around there, and in the verses immediately preceding this, they really were wandering a bit because they wanted to go to this place, but the Holy Spirit said no. They wanted to go to this place, but the Holy Spirit said no. So Paul was in deep discernment trying to figure out where God was leading him next and enters into this, this, the scene, this vision of a Macedonian man saying, please come and help us. So Paul and Timothy and possibly Luke get on a boat and cross the Aegean Sea, uh, and they travel to what is now uh, modern-day northeast Turkey to, uh, to the province of Macedonia, uh, winding up in the town of Philippi. And uh, this is an amazing scene for a number of reasons. But when I, when I think about this, the encounter between Paul and Lydia, I, I think of it in my mind as the conversion of Coco Chanel. So the conversion of Coco Chanel. So uh, Lydia doesn't get a lot of coverage in the Bible, but what we do hear about her gives us a great deal of information. So first of all, she's from Thyatira, which is back over in where modern-day Turkey is in your kind of Bible geography map. So she's traveled some ways herself as a, a, as a merchant, as a seller of purple cloth. Thyatira in the ancient world was close to a, a reserve of, of purple dye, which was very, very rare. And in fact, purple cloth was almost exclusively reserved for the emperor, so she was a clothing merchant of imperial clothing. So she was kind of a big deal. Uh, she would have been a, a very wealthy business person uh, who would have had a great deal of mobility. The fact that she doesn't have a husband mentions indicates that she didn't need a husband <laughs> as an identifier. She was Lydia, and that's good enough. She was the, the one-name superstar of her day. Uh, and she's outside um, with this group of people worshiping on the Sabbath day, which is also kind of interesting. Uh, it tells us that in Philippi, in, Ta uh, in, in Paul's day, there wouldn't have been a community established yet uh, with, with, with a synagogue. So Paul's missionary journeys went something like this. You know, Paul goes to a town, finds a synagogue, preaches the gospel, is either successful and there's a lot of conversions or is run out of town or thrown into prison. Uh, and so in this case, he goes to Philippi. There is no synagogue. There isn't a, a large Jewish community established already. And so he hears where there are people gathered for prayer outside the city gates in this kind of informal prayer meeting where Lydia happens to be one of the, the leading figures of this meeting, indicating that um, A, there's not much of a, of a Jewish community yet, and also that she would have been a fairly significant figure in this community. She's described as a God-fearer, which is a really important term uh, for Luke in the book of Acts. There are three conversions of God-fearers that, that pepper the book of Acts in really important ways, and, and this, this kind of will get to what I think is, might be under, underlying the meaning for this passage for us today. There are three God-fearer conversions in the book of Acts. The first one is with Philip on the road as he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. You'll recall this story, it's, it's pretty tremendous. Philip is transported through the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure if he's got like his Starship Enterprise, you know, communicator deal that sort of zaps him into the desert, but there he is encountering this uh, court official from uh, the, the court of Candace, uh, the queen of Ethiopia. Uh, the, the person he encounters is a Gentile 
who is interested in the God of Israel, so interested in fact that he was able to afford to buy a text of Isaiah, so interested in fact that he was able to spend time in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and he encounters Philip on the road, uh, hears the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, that in Jesus, God is creating a new creation where all people are gathered into God in this profound sense of belonging, and the, the eunuch asks Philip to baptize him. Later on in the passage, in, Acts, or in, in the book, Acts chapter 10, we encounter a similar scene, not with Philip or with Paul, but with Peter. Peter is uh, sleeping uh, at a friend's house in Joppa, has a vision of this cloth coming down from heaven with all kinds of creepy crawly animals on it, and hears a voice from God telling him, Peter, take and eat. Peter's response is, I've never eaten anything unkosher, but okay. And he wakes up from this strange dream and immediately uh, receives a call from a, a Roman centurion in Caesarea asking him to hear more about Jesus. And Peter obeys, goes up to meet Cornelius in Caesarea, the, the centurion, and uh, immediately upon hearing the gospel, Cornelius and his household are baptized. Yet another God-fearer. In these three stories of God-fearers, we find people in whom the Holy Spirit is active, drawing people to God, creating a kind of thirst and a curiosity for, for an encounter with God, and God's messengers, in this case, Philip and Peter and Paul, arrive on the scene to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and immediately, there's this confirmation of God's welcome, that people who would have otherwise been excluded from the worship of God according to the law of the Old Testament are now brought into the family of God. The eunuch, because he was a, a, a gender non-binary person, the Hebrew Bible is very clear that the, 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 the eunuchs were not allowed into the temple, is immediately brought into the community of God's love through Jesus Christ. The centurion uh, um, Cornelius, this force of oppression, this, this symbol of the occupying force of, of Rome over Israel-Palestine, is uh, who is curious about the God of Israel is immediately brought into God's love, even though he represents the kind of imposition of power and control from, from the historic enemy of God's people. And here we see Lydia, this powerful woman who is already so transgressive in her time uh, as a, likely a single woman trading in business, representing um, a, a, a nascent synagogue community in Philippi, being brought into the community of God, creating a sense of belong experiencing this profound sense of belonging. So I think in these three stories, whether it's the Ethiopian eunuch, the conversion of, the, of Cornelius, or here with Lydia, the conversion of the first century Coco Chanel, we see uh, God at work accepting, loving, and creating an intense community of belonging, no sky miles involved, uh, in spite of our best efforts to create exclusionary practices that say, no, only this kind of person can come in and be loved by or worship God. God is calling all people to worship God's self. God is creating a space at God's table for all of us, whether we are, uh, wherever we are, in, uh, in, 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 our, in our walk of life. So when I think about what this could be saying to us as we go forth from, from church today into our, our work weeks, is to, 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 I'd leave you with a question. Where do we see God at work in people around us? Where is God's spirit 
may be uh, rustling the hearts of, of friends or colleagues or loved ones who uh, you know, may not be followers on the way of Jesus, may not be particularly religious, but are still searching, are curious, are, are, are sensing the pull towards something beyond themselves whether it's a profound desire to care for people, whether it's a desire for transcendence, whether it's this feeling, this sense, this need for belonging. Where is God at work in the lives of people around us, stirring up in that way, stirring up the kind of love for God that was present in the Ethiopian eunuch, that was present in the mind of Cornelius the centurion, that was behind the, the hospitality and the prayerfulness of Lydia of Philippi. Where is God at work in those places and in those people? And then secondarily, how can we hear the Spirit of God within ourselves uh, to empower us to carefully and lovingly extend the offer of God's love to people? To say, the, 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 the thing that you're seeking is actually seeking after you. And that's the story of grace, right? That here are people um, in these three episodes, these three key stories in the book of Acts, here are three types of people walking along their way, searching, looking for, desiring a connection with God. But what happens is God meets them, not just halfway, but all the way. God meets them exactly where they're at. And the way that God meets people where they're at is through folks like us who are attentive to the voice of the Spirit and are willing to bring God's love to people uh, when they're searching for it. So I would ask us as we go out this week, to be mindful of the Spirit of God at work in places where we wouldn't expect God's Spirit to be at work, and to be attentive to the Spirit of God within ourselves as God leads us out to be agents of God's love, God's acceptance, and God's belonging in the world. And with that, we'll take a few minutes of silence to meditate on God's Word.